0: The introduction to clinical research podcast. My name is Debbie and I use she/her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I've decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Hi everyone, Debbie here. Just a quick note. Elise's audio for this episode sounds not great. You know why that is? It's the same issue that I had a few episodes ago where we used the wrong mic to record. So, we fixed it for the episode after this one and we would like to sincerely apologize. Again, we are not professionals. We're doing our best. We thank you for your patience.
1: Back to the episode. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Uh, hello, my name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I don't work in clinical research, so I'm here to be explained to. Also, I've been a little sick, so I'm sorry if I sound nasty.
0: You sound beautiful. Well done for taking care of yourself. Oh, thanks. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so hopefully you have a bit more information. You know uh, where the outcomes of research come from and you feel like you can trust them a little bit more today we are talking about quality assurance in clinical trials
1: so exciting i
0: have no time for your sarcasm
1: <laughs> quality is very
0: important
1: well that's true so
0: what do we what, what do we mean right how do we ensure that the trial is done properly And that the data we get out of the study are reliable, documented, reported in the right way, following all the rules and regulations. So quality assurance or QA, if you're hip and cool like me, (laughs) is usually discussed or sort of is seen as like a, a pile of planned and systemic actions. So it's a whole umbrella of things that cover the study as a whole. Okay. So they're usually broad topics of activities to ensure the quality of your outputs. That's what quality assurance is. And a subset of quality assurance activities is quality control or QC. Okay. Okay. QC activities are normally like more specific and detailed. So for example, a QC check might be if I'm a study administrator, the job that I first did when I started my career 10,000 years ago. If I receive a document that needs to be part of the TMF, the trial master file, the documents for the study, right? And I know for this particular type of document, certain things have to be true about it. I will have a checklist to work through before that document is accepted and goes into the file. So I I might need to check, for example, if it's a form, are all of the boxes on the form completed properly? Are all the tick boxes or the print boxes or whatever it is, are they all completed as I would expect? Are all the pages there? If it's a three-page document, I've got page one of three, I've got page two of three, I've got page three of three. Is it signed and dated as I would expect? Is it signed by the person whose name is at the top of the form as the person completing the form? And so on and so on and so on. So it's, it's super detailed, it's granular, and it's really operationally focused on that particular document. I'm doing a QC, quality control check on that thing.
1: So can I just ask, like, if, was in the example you gave of, like, the form, the name at the top and the signature, what if those don't match and you ask and it's something like, oh, yeah, she went on maternity leave, so her boss signed it instead, do you just say, okay, cool, and, like, check it off, or do you have to, like, correct something at that point
0: it would depend a little bit on the nature of the thing so for the example that you gave normally if it's a form like the form that i was thinking of in my mind is was something called a financial disclosure form which is usually something completed by investigators it's essentially people on the study who have the ability to impact patient safety or data integrity to a significant extent you get them to to financially disclose their interests so if i'm being paid a ton of money by a sponsor company i need to disclose that because there's a potential conflict of interest right that's what a financial disclosure form is all about and someone else cannot sign on that person's behalf Mm -hmm. yeah so that form will stand with the written explanation of mary went on maternity leave she'll be back at this date she didn't sign the form before she left so and so signed on her behalf which isn't really how it works we will get her to sign a new form when she's back got it so that you have kind of the full story of it right that's the documentation of what's gone on that's the truth Mm -hmm. and there's not very much else you can do about it at that point that the the really key thing with documentation is get the person to sign it when they're there yeah but if they're not there then you have to document the full story and get it fixed as soon as you can okay okay so qc checks are normally operationally focused and can be parts of um wider broader qa activities If Quality Assurance is the roof, then four or five of the pillars could be QC activities. There there can be other pillars holding up the roof as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of a way of, of thinking about QA because it's a really broad topic and it includes a lot of activities. We're going to talk about some today and then probably possibly give some items their own episodes too, especially if Elise drags me down question corridors it's
1: literally my job (laughs) i
0: anticipate you will yeah i know which is not a problem it's just i uh, there's a lot under this qa Mm -hmm. umbrella because we're trying to to make sure that the quality of every bit of this study is good enough right so that we can trust the outcomes the patients are safe and the data is usable the quality of everything and quality is a concept that that as human beings i think we often have but we don't think about how you ensure it so if you're thinking about like i want to eat eat a quality meal what goes into that right and it will be ingredients it will be the recipe that's followed it will be the the attention to detail on the preparation steps and the time that it's cooked for and that it's not burnt or undercooked and all the flavors go well together it's lots of different things That will put that quality dish on that plate and in your mouth. Mm -hmm. So let's get into some QA activities. So project management is the first one, which is a very broad term, right? You're managing a project. And in this case, the project that we're talking about is the clinical study that is being conducted. In general, project management is a group of activities where... A person, normally called the project manager, makes sure that the study delivery is on track. So delivery of a study covers all kinds of different things, including the quality. So have we recruited the right number of patients? Have the patients consented properly? Uh, Is their data entered into the database? Has that been done in a timely manner? Are we missing anything? Do we have enough resources to deliver the study? So do we have... The data programmers? Do we have the monitors to go to the site? Do we have enough laptops for all of the sites? All all kinds of different things, right? Project management sounds like a really boring thing because you're basically trying to keep an eye on everything that's going on, right? You're kind of like air traffic control, watching all of the different bits that are your responsibility, but you're not necessarily doing anything. You're just kind of watching all the things happen and facilitating all of those different activities. But it is hugely important to quality study delivery because if no one is checking, are all of these things happening, then guaranteed at least some of them aren't happening. And it's not just about are they happening, it's about are they happening on time and are they happening in the right way so that the quality is coming out. Because, okay, we've recruited 100 patients, but guess what? Nobody consented and none of them are eligible. So irrelevant, in the bin. Got to recruit 100 more, okay? Okay. So if if no one is checking if we've recruited 100 patients... Well what, what 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 do you think happens then?
1: I mean if no one's paying attention to how many people are getting recruited then potentially you could fall short or above your recruitment goal and end up or just keep recruiting endlessly. No, that's not going to happen. Why not? Because there's who's got the money. Oh, yeah. to pay for that. <laughs> go, okay, fair enough. Well, okay, I guess like <laughs> in a in a sanitized uh laboratory condition, perhaps the little worker bee that we've programmed to be the recruiter would just keep recruiting until the budget goes to zero.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely. And you can you could end up in a situation where they just keep recruiting and you've got a study that's ethically approved to recruit 100 patients and you've recruited 200. Does your insurance cover that? Are you ethically in danger because you've over recruited have you got enough drug to then dose 200 patients for the year of the study and so and so so you can imagine that like something where you think oh amazing we've we've got 200 patients instead of 100 that's fantastic Mm -hmm. not necessarily there could be extremely serious consequences if you haven't planned for that and if it's not legally allowed
1: Yeah. yeah has that happened
0: i have not worked on a study where we have over recruited (laughs) <laughs> I have worked on many studies where we have struggled to recruit. Yes. Yeah. And I think that is much more likely mm-hmm. because usually the inclusion exclusion criteria, which is a concept we've met before, right? The the things that make sure you get the right patients in the study. Yes. Are usually very stringent, and and meeting those can sometimes be really difficult. Mm-hmm. So, project management is one really key important thing that can facilitate quality delivery. The next QA activity is standard operating procedures, SOPs, or SOPs, Ops. if you're unbelievably cool. Oh, yeah. SOPs.
1: Unbelievably cool, or just trying to sound like you're from the military. <laughs> this is a military term that your profession... Is It, it is. And my profession both oh. stole. Actually... <clears throat> When I mentioned this to you, uh, a little peek behind the curtain, uh, we have notes to each other about what we're going to talk about. Shocker. And I put this in a comment, and Debbie said, bring it up. And so I said, oh, God, what if I'm wrong? So I Googled in. <laughs> and <laughs> – um, it, the interestingly, the Wikipedia page for SOPs actually. Oh, that, hang on! Hang, Wikipedia is a terrible source. I know that. Oh, sorry, I know sorry. that. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me a minute. I'm going through my. I'm going through my process. You have the to process. Trust the process. Trust Elise. I've <laughs> basically got my PhD. I know how to do research. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the Wikipedia page actually has the vast majority of its dedication is to clinical research which I thought was very interesting because I have primarily encountered SOPs from a military background because I'm in emergency management and a lot of people in emergency management are military um and Mm. so I and so I was like okay well I need to dig into this (laughs) so I did a little bit more and according to the Oxford English Dictionary the first recorded use the best dictionary mm -hmm. well the best dictionary if you want to get into etymologies because it actually traces as many recorded known uses of a word or term as it as it can Uh, the first recorded use of sop the acronym or sop the acronym is 1940s in the u.s military Uh, and the first use of the word standard operating procedure was only in 1939 but i couldn't actually because it was behind a paywall couldn't find out more about that use so who knows questionable how exactly the term got used first but But let's assume it was the u.s military i think i think it's a safe assumption all right interesting interesting okay so
0: standard (laughs) operating procedures or SOPS thank you to the u.s military for that terminology um are documented procedures that tell us how to do something so we all do it the same way consistently right which is something that of course i can imagine that the military are keen on yeah. And my industry, hugely, and, I, and I'm not surprised that the, it's all over the Wikipedia page, because it's like day one in clinical research mm-hmm. is here are your SOPs. This is how you know how to do your job. Like, we're not thoughtless automatons, but it's, the, the SOPs are the framework that guide you, mm-hmm. right? They're the, the roads that you drive on when you're doing your job. And they're really important because they ensure compliance with regulations. SOPs are written to follow the rules. So if you're following the SOP, you're following the rule. And they're really important for ensuring consistency across countries, sites, offices in behaviour, right? So where culturally we may do things differently or just from experience, we may do things differently. In some situations, it doesn't matter. Like there are many ways to peel a potato and sometimes it doesn't matter how you do it, but sometimes it's really important that you you peel that potato a certain way. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like if you're trying to get curly fries or something, the analogy escapes me, but (laughs) sometimes it's important that you follow a set Process, right? And that's when an SOP becomes important. It tells you how to get from A to B. Mm -hmm. And if you're controlling the behaviour or the steps that folks are following, hopefully you're also controlling the outcomes if we've adequately controlled the other variables, right? So if we're all using the same form, if we're all inputting the data into the same system and we're all doing it the same way, then no matter who does the process, the outcome should be the same. That's the point of an SOP. Next. Next. Data oversight. And this is something that I think, you know, with the current debate around AI is, is technology is more and more coming to the fore. And it, it has been at the fore and and has been a growing part of clinical research since my career started. Here's a cool thing that you can do with a computer. Maybe you don't think it's as cool as I do, but you can look at patterns in data. So don't at <laughs> least it's giving me a face like I've just said the most obvious thing in the history of the world.
1: That's what computers were built to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. But... Oh it's not what we like we use computers to be on video calls yes, with yes, each other yes, at least yes. right and to record our voices so what? <laughs> Okay so don't come at me uh <laughs> because this isn't something that I've ever done myself but I did work on a study where we identified an issue because of this computer-led data review mm-hmm. right looking at for patterns in data that as amazing as our human brains are for doing so many things this is where we're not not as powerful as computers sure. right we're, yeah. we we beat computers at so many things but this pattern recognition the issue that was identified was because a particular site, a particular clinical site on a particular clinical study some years ago, kept giving the exact same number for all of their temperature readings. So when they're taking a patient's temperature. So, you know, like you go to the doctor's office and they stick the thermometer mm-hmm. under your tongue or in your ear or wherever else they may <laughs> stick a thermometer to take your temperature. And y- it will normally be like, yeah, like let's say it's 97.8. And then you'll take it the next day and it'll be 97.9. And you'll take it the next day and it'll be 97.6, right? There's that normal variation within the range of accepted human body temperatures whatever they may be nobody knows (laughs) right so normally you're expected for things like that right the way the data looks if you plot it all out is on a bell curve so there'll be some folks who will be naturally cooler and down the left hand side of the graph some folks who will be naturally hotter down the right hand side of the graph but those numbers are low the vast majority of people will sit under the high part of the bell curve in the middle okay there is an natural variation what was weird for this particular site was every patient every visit at this site was consistently like 37 degrees celsius or, or whatever yeah. whatever temperature it was i don't remember but it was and to the decimal place like mm-hmm. 98.9 mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. every time every time and the thing is that if you as a as a monitor which is something we'll get on to in a second right if i'm the monitor and i'm going and looking at that data and i'm seeing i've got four patients let's say and they have monthly visits, and I go to the site every couple of months. So I'm looking at maybe eight visits worth of data or six visits worth of data, but there's no way I'll get through all of that because I've got so many different things to look at. And I see the temperature is 98.9 or whatever I said it was. That is within the normal range. That is acceptable. That is recorded on the thermometer that is there in the patient's notes. I'm not going to question it. And by the time I've got onto the next monthly visit, that's an hour later. Am I going to remember that it was ninety eight point nine? Unlikely. Maybe if I'm a really good monitor, I'm going to pick that up. Mm-hmm. But a computer can pick that up unbelievably quickly, and it did in this in this case. So as a result, they the, the question came came through from the from the centralised data folks, and they said, "Hey, it's, is, this is weird. It could be correct." It could be one of those fluky things in data where it just so happens that all of these patients, for one reason or another, for this particular few month period, have all got a consistent body temperature. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And it's not like none of them are out of range. It's not a problem. It just looks weird. Could someone check? So we went to check and it turned out that the thermometer was broken. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been calibrated. Oh. So... It was, it was measuring the temperature, not accurately. So, lol. That was a, a really important way of checking remotely what was going on. And it was because of that pattern in the data that maybe a human could have picked up, but a computer picked it up so easily. Yeah. That was a really good way of assuring the quality of that particular tiny bit of data. The difference between like data oversight and monitoring, which we're going to come on to now, is the data oversight piece is something that's done like remotely centrally. And they'll look at patterns within a particular patient... They'll look at patterns at a particular site across multiple patients. They'll look at patterns across multiple sites within a country. And then across the whole study, all of the countries, all of the sites, everything. And that's really interesting because it can tell you if there's variation between countries that could be due to demographics or standard of care or whatever at the site level, if it's a broken thermometer. And you can also see if there's variations for that particular patient over time, right? So if you're looking at someone and you're seeing their blood pressure is slowly creeping up over like a two-year period, that is not something that probably the human eye could spot easily. I mean, if you graphed it all out, you could see it, right? But a computer's going to look at that and go, hey, that person's blood pressure's been going up 2% every month for the last two years. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that remote data oversight, data analysis, whatever you want to call it, data monitoring, data review, really uses technology more so than the human brain to identify those patterns or those changes or those, those weird things that then usually have to be checked by a human brain or eye um, but it's, it's primarily remote and primarily computer driven whereas monitoring is the act of physically overseeing the progress of a clinical trial at a clinical trial site making sure that they do everything according to GCP, the protocol, the rules, the regs and everything's documented accordingly and that requires a human being to go and look the work of monitoring is done by you're not going to believe this elise monitors what Mm -hmm. um (laughs) so job titles uh it's they're usually actually called clinical research associates or cras or site managers or site monitors and it is their job to travel to the different sites and Talk to the people that do the work and look at the documents and look at the patient's notes and the consent forms and everything to check that they're doing everything properly. And these people are usually employed by the sponsor company or a second company called a CRO, Clinical Research Organisation. In order to deliver that service. Now, CROs, they simply exist to contract services out to sponsor companies. Uh, And I don't I don't quite understand the business model, but I imagine it's cheaper or something or something. Who knows? But that's all CROs do is they contract services out to sponsor companies, pharma companies, whoever needs their services. Right. Like consultants. I currently work for a CRO and I have in my past life been a CRA. So I know in great detail what that job involves, but it's basically looking at everything that the site is doing to make sure that they're doing it right. When compared to GCP, the protocol, the law, another set of instructions, an SOP, what's the standard of care? There's no guesswork, right? We know Mm -hmm. what we should be doing. If something isn't clear, then it's expected that the site ask. And usually they'll ask the CRA and then the CRA will ask someone else if they don't know the answer. So Mm -hmm. the medical monitor, so the medical person on the study or the project manager or the pharmacist, right? Somebody, the CRA is like their conduit to answers and their trainer and their coach. And they're the person checking their homework, right? It's a really close relationship. It's collaborative. They're working together. So the CRA is there to kind of make sure that the site's doing the right thing and checking their work, kind of like marking their homework. Are they independent? Yes, but and you do end up becoming quite close with the sites that you work with. And your salary is paid for by pharma. So you are kind of in that middle, right? Where you're working for either directly the pharma company or contracted to the pharma company. And it and you want, right, the study to be a success. But the way that you make a study a success is by making sure that it's done properly. Even if the results then show the drug doesn't work, I still get paid. I don't care, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get paid if I do a bad job of making sure that the site are on the right track and delivering quality and everything's documented. That's the point at which I might get fired and not get paid. So... Um, I work collaboratively with the site and I want them to succeed and do a good job as well. But like my success, my salary isn't contingent on whether the drug succeeds. My salary is contingent on how good a job I do at finding the problems, documenting the problems and fixing the problems. So I think that the the independence isn't really the question. It's the, the what am I rewarded for, right? The mm-hmm. incentivization of my job. Mm-hmm. And I'm incentivized to do my job properly because
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm not incentivized to make sure that the drug's are success to, to tweak the data here or there. Right. I don't care. Do you have any questions about that conflict of interest piece?
1: <laughs> you know, I always do. I think that you've uh, you've intentionally kind of headed me off at that pass a little bit by being like, I tried. No, no. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. I don't think that. Um, I don't think that there's anything new to say about it at this juncture. Sure. Right. Like. Yeah. We've said a lot about this in past episodes. You've said your piece about it already here, and I guess it doesn't change the fact that that still ultimately like boils down to something that is gray area in terms of conflict of interest from my perspective, yeah. but it also doesn't change the fact that like it is the system that we have and that there are fail-safes and catches in place and incentives built in such a way to try to minimize the risk of that. So I guess maybe one day, like, the conflict of interest question needs to really come to roost in terms of, like, a really in-depth thinking through of it. Um, but maybe not, right? Maybe we've said what we need to say about it.
0: Okay, okay. I, I, I think the most important thing that we remember when we're talking about quality assurance, when we're talking about transparency, when we're talking about doing things right, quote unquote, the way that clinical research is structured now, and a lot of this is based for, on, like, the historical stuff, um, is layers of fail-safes so it's not Mm -hmm. a single point of failure as far as possible right so you've got um project managers you've got data analysis you've got monitors um and each of those is like a net that's going to catch some of the issues and some of the issues may filter down to the next level the next level and each the idea of having these layers is that each is going to catch some so that none get through to the bottom where stuff can go wrong Mm -hmm. Um, and I think one of the one of the most important nets, safety nets in terms of QA is the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is audits and inspections. So these are both QA activities. They both fall under this quality umbrella that are similar but different. So in my past life, right, my career history, I was a I was a study administrator, a clinical trials administrator, CTA. And then I became a CRA, clinical research associate, did that for a little bit. And then I became an auditor. So I travelled around to lots of different sites, um, and vendors, and CROs, and a whole bunch of different people assessing their compliance. Right, it's a really great job. Lots of travel, great experience seeing different sites, different practices, different stuff. Um, then I went back to being a CRA for a while. Then I was a trainer. Now I'm doing the job that I do now in software development for research. So, like my career history, I've been all over the shop and I've seen lots of different things, and. Auditing was the job that I I had for a long time, and I really really enjoyed doing it because the difference between auditing and monitoring is, or I should say, the similarity is audits are very like monitoring visits. You go and you look at things and you assess are they are they done the right way, are they done in mm-hmm. compliance, are they done properly, completed, um, everything documented, is it all done by the right people who've got the right qualifications, right? You've not got a random person off the street come to inject somebody with something. The difference between an auditor and a monitor is a monitor is going to work with the site to keep them on the straight and narrow, very collaborative, Mm -hmm. to try and fix what's wrong, which can be really frustrating if the site aren't motivated to fix what's wrong. (laughs) An auditor, you basically go, here's your list of things that's wrong and I'm out of here. And you leave and you expect them to fix it and it's not your problem. One of my favourite ever audits that I did was I audited a CRO and then a year later, the same sponsor company said right go back and check that they fixed all of the stuff that you found last year and I was like peace this is gonna this is gonna be so great because either they have and it's the easiest audit of my life or they haven't and they're gonna get hauled over the coals and that's fun too Uh, and it (laughs) turned out lol they hadn't they hadn't fixed everything and so I was sat in the opening meeting of this audit and and you have audit findings right so the things that me the auditor spotted and then they sent responses to that saying yeah we're going to do this to solve the problem and the deadline and all of the deadlines were like six months ago yeah. and some of them they'd done and some of them they hadn't. And I was just sat there with the, like the director of the project and the project leader, like the the whole hierarchy of the projects from like the highest yeah. level and nobody would look at me. I was like, why was this not done?
1: Yeah, I can imagine how this, you going down the checklist and you're like okay so item one um deadline three months ago and uh it says here nothing uh how what's what's up with that one Uh item two um says deadline six months ago um what was done uh nothing nothing (laughs) item three
0: (laughs) you uh you you have actually uh retrained two people so that's that done Mm mm-hmm Interesting. Okay. Um, two yeah, out of eight or something? Two out of 400, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Okay, but, so but wait, yeah, what, it, it was.
1: what happens then?
0: Oh, they so lost those... the contract.
1: So, like, they just have to shut the whole thing down?
0: mm So, in this situation, I was auditing a contract research organization on behalf of a sponsor company, a pharma company, and it was part of a series of audits that we did. So I audited the the CRO. So I went to their office and I audited like their SOPs and the TMF for this study and what they were doing centrally. And then I went out to like four or five different sites across Europe and audited how the sites were doing. And the sites were fine. Like there were errors that they'd made, but there was nothing really kind of across the whole study that the sites were doing wrong. Because if the sites are making the same mistakes, no matter where they are geographically, that points to a systemic failure of project management, project setup, project oversight. If every site is making the same mistake, and they're like, one's in Germany, one's in Poland, one's in Italy, like that's not, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's because there's some systemic failure somewhere, right? And a lot of the problems that we were seeing were these kind of systemic issues, particularly from when I did this audit Mm -hmm. at the CRO. There were lots of things where they hadn't the documents, they hadn't the evidence, they hadn't proof that this thing had been done in the way that it was required to be done. And so we did the audit and we said, right, you've got, you know, you've got to fix this because that's the the requirement. And the study was running for like another two, three years. And the sponsor were like, we think things are better. Can you go back and check that they've got all of the evidence to, for all of Mm -hmm. the things that you spotted last time? I was like, yeah, of course. And they didn't. And so like after it was meant to be like a three-day audit so at the end of day two I'm in the conference room in the CRO's office on the phone to the sponsor and we're running through the list like super quick like what what have they done and what haven't they done and the person my contact at the sponsor who was a director or senior director like relatively high up was like right well this isn't good is it I went no (laughs) they're like can you just hang hang on the line for a minute like yeah of course what do you need nothing nothing i'm just gonna go check something and then i'll come back and they went out and came back in with like the next highest up person who was like one down from the ceo Uh and they're like so we think what we're gonna do is we think we're gonna take the contract off this cro and go find another cro to bid it with you can't tell them that okay (laughs) you need to finish up the audit and collect all of the evidence and uh but but we're gonna notify them like the minute that you leave tomorrow That that they're going to lose the contract. I was like, "Oh, okay." I'm like, "You could have just not told me that." Not told
1: me, yeah. And that would have been fine. (laughs) Now I have like
0: like, several million dollars worth of contract that this company aren't getting anymore, and it's going to go to a different company. And I now have to not give the game away about that, which was it was actually fine, but. It's it was awkward, so funny though,
1: because you're sitting there <sighs> like, ah, I know how many of you are about to be laid off.
0: And yeah, it, uh, it's not like it's not normally like that because the, yeah. usually this is a, this was a big CRO and they have plenty of other contracts. Right. It's not good, but no. it's not like oh you've lost this contract and then you're fired.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: certainly wouldn't be like the the CRAs mm-hmm. would be like the project director maybe because you stuffed this up um that's the kind of level yeah
1: i suspect at least a few people were fired who knows right like for that kind of gross misconduct right or like not misconduct but like mismanagement you're just not of a doing project? your job Surely. you're just not doing your job yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 exactly like someone's gonna come in there and be like okay well we just lost a seven million dollar contract or whatever and it's probably like really low in the grand scheme like a 70 billion dollar contract yeah <laughs> um yeah, we should probably some heads should roll yeah. for this. So
0: um, but it yeah. was
1: it and it was it was aw- awkward as well
0: because I also at the time was working for a CRO. So I was contracted to the sponsor to assess another business that was contracted to the sponsor. It's just yeah. But it it wasn't it, it wasn't in my interests to lose to take that work away from the company. It was in. It was right. My goal was: what is what is the study doing? What is the quality of this work? And interestingly, yeah. I audited the same company on a different study for a different sponsor, and they were great. They were fine. There were little issues mm-hmm. here and there. Like nobody's perfect. There's always sure. you're always going to find something in an audit. But it's it wasn't it wasn't that company couldn't do the job. It's they weren't doing that job on that study. And so taking that study off of them and giving it to another company is probably the right thing to do. Absolutely. So yeah, auditors such as myself, right? Usually paid by the sponsor. Even if, here's the hilarious thing, even if they're auditing the sponsor. So pharma companies have internal QA departments and that quality assurance department, some of that will be auditors and they will conduct audits on the functions that the sponsor is delivering. So sometimes the sponsor contracts work out, sometimes they do it themselves. And no matter who's doing the work, it should be audited
1: yeah
0: you audit based on risk so you're not going to audit every single piece of work every single like minutiae of every bit of a study you're going to take the high risk bits and you're going to do a random sample as well because that's going to show you where the problems are um the conflict of interest that i think happens in audits is potentially i'm employed by the sponsor company and I'm auditing mm-hmm. the people that pay my salary. Now, yeah. Every auditor that I've ever worked with has had really high integrity. So if you see something, you're going to go, well, that's not right. Even if it's your best mate, your colleague, someone working down the hall, even if they're doing it, but it does rely on the individual's integrity.
1: Yeah. I yeah, I mean it's it's it seems like the most basic kind of conflict of interest, right? That like the person you have to call out because it's not I agree that like the vast majority of these people must have a high level of integrity. I think to be an auditor, you probably self-select into that role as someone who cares a lot about the integrity of things like this, right? That there's a certain amount of that in a lot of professions where this kind of stuff happens. And I um, certainly trust your integrity as a person and as someone who would do that. (laughs) The look she's given me. But I do think also that there there is pressure that can't always... Be as simple as explained away by like, yeah. I can withstand this because I am an integritus. Integritus, I have a lot of integrity. Yeah, as...
0: that's the word. Uh huh. <laughs> it is now
1: <laughs> because I have a lot of integrity as a person. Like you know, if if your boss yes. is kind of like, you know, and like that, there we we know that like hostile work environments and other types of discrimination and things like that can absolutely end up having an impact. Yeah. And of course, like you know, the risk of being Offered extra money to pay something off because you really need that little bit to help your kid through a tough time right now or whatever. Like those things always exist, but I don't know. I don't know. uh I guess that's there. You go. You asked me earlier. Do I have things to say still about? Yeah, and,
0: and it turns out you do. Yeah.
1: I'm a, I do well specifically about this. This seems like if you're an auditor paid by the sponsor and you're auditing the sponsor. Yes. This and it's the same. You know, it's company A and it's company A. That's it's tough tricky.
0: For it's me. it is tricky, definitely, and it's it's not something that is only in this industry, right? Because we're seeing it absolutely at the moment. Uh, I don't know whether it's on the news where you are, but like Boeing and the windows popping out of planes.
1: Hmm. Great. Right,
0: and that's because ba- basically they're marking their own homework on the safety yeah. pieces of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, that's tricky. I would add auditors aren't the only people marking the sponsor's homework, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that you've said I don't disagree with, but there's another safety net below them, okay? So GCP has this concept of an inspection, which is like an audit, mm-hmm. but conducted by a government regulator.
1: Surely that's true of, like, Boeing too, right? Like
0: I genuinely don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I've been on the receiving end of these inspections by the MHRA, which is our UK one by the mm-hmm. FDA which is your your lads or yeah. folks and the uh, European Medicines Agency so the the European equivalent right and they are not mm-hmm. a walk in the park they look at everything with a fine tooth comb they don't let anything slide and they're not paid by mm-hmm. the sponsors they're the government so obviously they... Which means they're not paid at all. <laughs> true.
1: As a current Karun employee. Absolutely. absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. So similarly to how an audit isn't going to look at every single thing, right? It's done on risk. Inspections are the same. But it's mm-hmm. it's this these overlapping safety nets that go down and down and down that will catch most of the errors, the problems, the inconsistencies that could jeopardize the quality of a study. And then mm-hmm. we talked about this in, I think, one of the historical tragedies episodes when we talked about a four course mm-hmm. inspection, so there are routine, yeah. quite unquote, routine inspections that are done like a set cadence. Yeah. So, let's say the MHRA plans to audit every sponsor and CRO in the UK every three or four years, for example. They'll go to every phase mm-hmm. one site every one or two years, for example. That's the kind of their routine cadence. But they also will respond to reports that may require a four course audit. So, like, the to January 1412 study. Bam, we've got to go the next day. All hands on deck. Let's go. Right. I was on the receiving end of an MHRA four-cause inspection when a patient called the MHRA and said, I've been enrolled into a study and I haven't consented to it and sent to the MHRA a copy of the consent form with their name on it signed by the doctor but not signed by the patient and the MHRA like the next day turned up at the site Yeah. and let me I'll talk you through what happened what happened was the doctor had sat down with the patient all the questions the conversation the consent process and it was fully documented in the source notes this conversation that had happened and then this is where the doctor made the mistake the way consent works in the UK is you have two copies of the form the patient signs both and the doctor signs both and the patient gets to keep one and either doctor get to keep one right so we've both got yeah. documentation with original signatures not photocopies on it and what the doctor did yeah. was say you sign that one and then give it to me i'll sign this one and then we'll swap and the patient didn't uh-huh. sign the copy that they'd been given
1: but then but they did sign the other copy
0: yes so when the mhra turned up at the site the doctor was able to produce the full yeah narrative story in the history and the signed consent form with the patient's signature and the doctor's signature on it
1: so why did the patient report this were they just working in bad faith like they were just like aha i'm gonna get this doctor in trouble no idea that seems don't know wow but that
0: shows you the importance of documentation yeah and the lesson that was learnt by that site was you watch the patient sign both of them yeah. and then you the doctor do your qc check yeah to make sure that all of the boxes are filled out and the patient signed it before you sign it and then you give the patient the copy and send them out the door
1: yeah so in that case was it essentially like a reprimand and the doctor and that patient was dismissed from the trial and then the doctor just continued working as normal? Yes. because
0: Yeah, basically it okay, was it yeah. was you made okay. a mistake in you signed a form that the patient hadn't signed. You shouldn't have right. done that. Yeah. But we also have 18 other consent forms for all the other patients, including this patient, where all of the signatures are in place and everything's done properly and actually the consent process looks pretty it's not perfect but it looks pretty robust this was the mistake that you made don't do that again
1: yeah okay that makes sense yeah that's way less alarming yeah once you hear the whole story it's a little less alarming like there's still like questions of course but it's like compared to the like the headlines right the clickbait title of like this patient never consented and calls the mhra you're like what the but but the
0: mhra's (laughs) response to that was Completely the right one. They turned up unannounced. Mm -hmm. They did not give us any time to prepare for it. Yeah, because we, you couldn't cover, you couldn't cover your ass in that case. Like it was this is potentially really serious we need to go there now and find out the truth of the story so they they responded exactly as you would want them to right to that patient report yeah did everything properly and it was just good that the site had done stuff properly mostly properly like okay they'd made this mistake but yeah but i got some i got some tons of audit stories from from my life you want okay tell me more okay i need more yeah. Um, so there's always, there's always, always the like, oh, this, this protocol deviation, they didn't take the blood sample when they should have. They, there was an adverse event, like this patient had a headache and it was never reported. Like this document was never signed. You know, like the example we talked about before, Mary's yeah. gone on maternity leave. No one ever scores 100% on an audit. The best audit I was on the receiving end of, where someone else came to audit the company that I worked for and I hosted it, we prepped, obviously. And we were pretty, yeah. not a big company and we were pretty slick at, at what we were doing at that point. Um, and this auditor was like a little baby auditor, they were pretty new to auditing. So they Aww. didn't ask any of the right questions. They didn't look at any of the right oh, documents. No. And the, the only findings they gave us were spelling mistakes in our SOPs. Oh my God. And genuinely, like when they left, whatever the last day of the audit was, if it was a Wednesday or a Thursday, whatever, they walked out and they'd given us the list of their findings. And it was all spelling mistakes. I turned to my boss, who was the director of quality and we just went, why And high-fived and went to the pub. Like that was the best audit you could possibly have. Was just spelling mistakes.
1: Just invite that little baby auditor and be like, "Let me teach. Let me teach you how to audit." Yeah, because I
0: know where all the problems are. They're over here, and I'm just going, "Hey, you you should look over here."
1: (laughs) Come on. You're supposed to be making people feel more confident. At
0: that at that point as well, like the problems were this. We're like, I I can still remember it to this day. Okay, so the problems were, like, we said that um we would retrain everybody on GCP every year and we'd missed two people who hadn't been retrained in a year. It'd been, like, 18 months. What impact does that have on a clinical study? Zero. But we'd, we'd identified that in our prep and we're like, oh God, if they find this, ugh. And two of our SOPs, I think it was something like our SOPs had to be renewed every two or three years and we hadn't done it. So like those... Well, they had a lot of spelling mistakes. Those were the problems that they could find. And we were just like, oh, look yeah. over here. So it's, you know, <laughs> you're right. Anyway, um, <laughs> other good examples. Oh yeah, okay. So I did an audit internationally. It was in a in a, in a, a different country to where we live and um i turned up at the site and you normally have like the the opening meeting where you get introduced to everyone and you tell them what the structure for it's going to be and what you're going to look at and the pi this nice woman
1: pi primary
0: principal investigator so the the doctor who's responsible for the study conduct at the site yeah comes in with a uh, like a gift wrapped pink bag and gives it to me and says for a good audit and i'm like i cannot accept a gift that is not appropriate she's like oh in our culture it's not like a bribe (laughs) it's just like a gift i'm like i I, i'm sorry i cannot accept this thank you very much like oh but it's really (laughs) rude if you don't accept it i'm like then cool i'm being rude yep
1: i guess i'm just gonna be rude about this i don't
0: speak and i'm there as well like i don't speak your language i have an interpreter here i have the cra from the sponsor company who's also like who is bilingual and, and can interpret as well, like, even if it was just me and you, I wouldn't accept it. But but no yeah. chance. No chance. But
1: yeah, especially with other people watching. Oof. Got it. Now, yeah, that's... It's like
0: Oh, it's really rude. I'm fun. like, cool. All right, I've been called worse. Yep. <laughs> Hilarious. And then, and that same hospital, the, the worst thing about auditing is if you're not, if you are a picky eater, you're going to have a bad time. So mm. a baby auditor that I trained up um, who was just one of the best people that I ever worked with? She she was lovely, but when we started working together, was a really picky eater. Like would only eat like potato chips and not very much else. Um, and like y- if you travel internationally, I cannot guarantee like what food you can get. Yeah. And I remember coming back from this particular order to this site where they tried to offer me a gift, and I was telling this person who I won't name. About what I'd eaten because I had to go to the canteen in the hospital at this site and like didn't speak the language and the CRA helped me pick something and we both Uh got the same bowl of soup and we sat down to to eat this soup and the CRA looked down and went oh no and we both had flies in our soup (laughs) we just like oh okay and we both ate it because we're like we're hungry we've done it we've done a lot of work we need to eat we've got like another four or five hours ahead of us this is just how it but we were both sat there and we just looked at each other and went oh (laughs) and then
1: fly soup. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel really confident about this the how clean that whole hospital is. Yeah, it's was.
0: not in this country. It's not in your country either, so. Yeah. What yeah, can we do? No, I...
1: Oh, I went and did
0: yeah. another audit when I was learning to be an auditor. My boss took me on an audit in another country, and this is a country where smoking in hospitals is fine. And I could not I still I remember I was in this hospital and we were auditing sat on a patient bed with the folders on our knees because they didn't have an office for us to order in fine like you just make the most of the facilities that you're in no problem and the principal we were in the principal investigator's clinical room and they're just chain smoking the whole day oh man yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah like that honestly being an auditor was the most fun and the most quote-unquote life experience i think i'll ever get because just all of these stories
1: when the reason I got excited about that one was because when I studied abroad in Greece it's legal for well, okay, so in the public hospitals mm. they have open air corridors, which are basically hallway mm. width, you know, three feet, four feet maximum in between the enclosed areas and you can smoke in those, which is basically just indoor hallways because it's tall yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. the, there's the air no doesn't real, really get yeah, out. And, yeah. Yeah. And we had to go, we had to go get TB tests uh, for visas. And we're standing there in the hallway waiting and doctors are just walking by smoking. And we're all all these American kids just lined up being like, what? It's it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Very interesting. So um, what other good stories have I got? Consent is always a big one. Like, and it's in this, in the UK, I, I saw, and I imagine it still happens because... Our society, and this is not a bad thing in my opinion, is multicultural. Like we have many different people from many different backgrounds who speak many different languages, and so the NHS has a thing in the UK where you can get uh, an interpreter. Right, so if you if you speak mm-hmm. a particular language, and as long as you book your appointment in advance, they can organise for an interpreter to come. And in this particular case. The interpreter was there and it was all in the the reason that i knew this was it was all in the narrative history of so and so the interpreter's here and they're they're helping the patient and the patient's son is also here and they're they're translating a little bit as well fine but the consent form was in english i'm like hold the phone <laughs> this per pa- this patient reads english well enough to be able to read this consent form and now consent forms are meant to be written in like layperson english but there's always scientific terminology mm-hmm. in there they, do they read english well enough but they don't speak english well enough to have a conversation with the doctor They're like oh no they don't read english at all i'm like then how have they signed a consent form in english why have we not got a consent form in their language oh the sponsor didn't provide it i'm like well that's not good so then i get on the phone to the sponsor i'm like hey why didn't you provide the site uh arabic consent form or, or whatever the language was a german consent form or whatever yeah, yeah. Like, oh it's just one patient and they said that they had a, a interpreter present i'm like yes but that patient will take that consent form home, right? And the idea of that is that they've got it to refer back to. So if they've got any questions, they want to they want to go back to the information, they've got it. And that consent form is meaningless to the patient because they cannot read it.
1: Mm-hmm. Interpretation and translation. Different things. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. The sponsor and the site both got smacked for that because they both failed.
1: Yeah, I bet. We, as a government body, when we... Make advice. Give advice, make advice to our local I'm going to make advice. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to make advice. Well, that is, uh, yeah, we, we don't have a whole lot of power to t- in Colorado as a very libertarian state to tell people what to do, but we can certainly advise and give guidance, and one of the big guidance things that we give is, like, hey, you need both interpretation and translation. Yeah. You have to have, like, interpretation is, like, I when, when we talk... There is an interpreter there translating yeah. as we go out loud verbally. And translation is written things are translated into another language. And if you don't have both of those things budgeted for and prepared for, then you actually have not achieved language justice or anything close to that. Correct. Either. And it's part it, it's in GCP
0: that all written information should be provided to the patient in a language they understand. Mm-hmm. That's that's the rule. Yeah. So you should do it. Like it's not yeah. it's not something that the other thing that sometimes auditors and inspectors do is they have a bee in their bonnet about a particular thing right and they've seen or heard an interpretation of a rule that mm-hmm. meets a requirement a certain way and the the, the good slash bad thing about gcp is it tells you what you should do but it doesn't tell how you should do it right so mm-hmm. all written information should be provided to the patient in a language they understand but it doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't say, oh, you have to give it to them in hard copy or you have to give it to them electronically or whatever. Yeah. It just says that you have to do it, right? So sometimes auditors or inspectors say, oh, you must do this. You're like, no, the requirement says this must be done and we've chosen to do it this way. Yeah. And that's adequate. So anyway, but in this case, there was no, there's no grey area. You didn't do what you should have done. Uh, often you might find that if there's a protocol amendment, so if the protocol is updated at some point during study conduct, which happens all the time for various reasons. If the thing in the protocol that's changed faces the patient or affects the patient, then the consent form is going to be updated too. And so I might join the study signing version one of the consent form, the first version. Mm-hmm. But if I'm on the study for three or four years... After the first year, I might have to sign version two. And then six months later, there's version three and four. And yeah. up-versioning the consent form happens as the information changes. It's particularly important if new safety information becomes available, right? If you realise, oh, actually, there's this new adverse event and we need to tell all the patients about it. Put it in the consent form. Cool beans. And once that consent form is ethically approved, it should be implemented in a timely manner. And if they don't do that, then the site's going to get a rap on the knuckles for it. The best, worst story I've got Uh is, again, it's international, so it wasn't in the UK, but it doesn't really matter. The only reason I say that is because how we found out about it couldn't have happened in the UK. Okay. So this patient was randomised into two studies a high blood pressure study and a diabetes study. And both of those diseases were exclusions to the other study. So the high blood pressure study said you cannot be in this study if you have diabetes. And the diabetes study said you cannot be in this study if you had high blood pressure. And they were on one study. (laughs) And then like six months later, they were on the next study.
1: I have a lot of questions. Yes. First of all, did the patient just choose not to disclose those things at each point? But more importantly, how did you catch this if... Shouldn't patient data be scrubbed? Like, if mm. I, in, like how would you know that I was the same person across two okay. independent so sites?
0: So, the data that is provided to the sponsor that's in the sponsor database is all anonymized, so it doesn't have names associated with it. So, in that case, right. nobody in the sponsor office could know. The monitor, the CRA, who goes to the site will look at the patient's notes in the hospital. They don't take anything home with them or anything away mm. with them, and they will see the patient's name, right? Okay. And that is how, it, it, in, this, okay. in this particular situation, it was actually like the, um, kind of the study manager at the site who was an administrator, not a clinical person. And they were working on tidying up some documents for this particular doctor. And they found this patient's name in these two studies and went, that seems weird. And then, because they were a great person, they went and looked up the protocol and checked it. And then they reported it. So then we went in and did an audit to verify. And the only reason that this was found is because in this particular country in Poland where the issue occurred the patient owns their medical history Mm. so instead of like my I don't have my medical notes at hand so I don't know what the doctor's written about me but in Poland you do you literally have a book that is your medical history and you take it to your doctor's appointments and you sit and discuss it and then you leave with it and they can take photocopies of it for their records okay and how we cracked this case was we asked Mr. December to come in and said can you bring in your medical history and he went yeah okay and we sat there and looked at the photocopies that the doctor had for each of the studies which was different and his originals and she had basically taken a photocopy tipexed out any reference to high blood pressure or diabetes depending on which it was and then photocopied it again why so that she could get patients onto studies so she could be paid the however many thousands oh. of whatever for it
1: yeah oh i see i think i misunderstood i thought that the patient was Mm -mm. doing this but it was the the, doctor oh my gosh the doctor was oh my god so what happened to her
0: she was reported to the authorities in her country and she lost her medical license
1: okay well good
0: because holy holy like okay so clinical research pays well Okay, so if you are a doctor and you're looking at recruiting patients, you will get paid X thousands of currencies for recruiting each patient to your study. And that is to cover your costs, the cost of the hospital and so and so and so and so. Right. But you'll also depending on where you are in the world, you'll also get a little payment in your pocket as the doctor. Right. For your time and energy and whatever. And if you recruit one patient, it's two hundred dollars. If you recruit. 10 patients, it's $2,000 and so, and so, and so. So there is often a motivation to recruit more and more patients. Cause it's more and more money. Okay. Yeah. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but it is how it is. Yeah. Cause people should be paid for the work that they do. Yes. It is the other side of it. And the more patients you have, the more work it is. So, okay. I don't know how, I don't know how we get around this, but in this situation, the, this doctor was high recruiting on many studies for many sponsors and like, ours was the tip of the iceberg of this kind of fraud that had been this doctor and a particular nurse they'd been working together to do it and it was just they found like it was there was more than this one case of taking the patient's medical notes and copying it and editing it and re-photocopying it and like the CRAs the monitors who went to the site wouldn't know because i'm monitoring this study the diabetes study and you Elise, are monitoring the blood pressure study and we don't talk about Oh, I've got Mr. December on my yeah. study. Oh, I've got Mr. December on my study. That's weird. Because you don't do that. That's not professional. Right.
1: Of course you don't. Yeah. Right. Well, but it's it seems like what luck that the monitor was the same person. and It wasn't. It was the study manager. But the, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. What luck that there was a yeah, okay, person who saw both. Said, yeah
1: right who could actually have access to the actual patient records as opposed to yeah. the anonymized version of the data that's being analyzed at a, at a more the photo- yeah, 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 probably-
0: yeah the doctored version
1: yeah. yeah yes wow i mean god things like that just do make me wonder though like what what about what if what if that person wasn't the same person then would that doctor still just be doing this Clearly eventually she was gonna get caught. Like it wasn't Yeah. Yeah. But like at the same time, it's just yeah. Oh she kind of yeah,
0: she problem. uh like I, I'm not a detective and I'm I don't play good cop bad yeah. cop, but she cracked under questioning. It was just straight oh, away. Uh, so like we walked yeah. into the room with Mr December's medical history and the two photocopies and we went, So what happened here? She just burst into tears. We're like, Well, I guess we know the answer to that. Oh my god. <laughs>
1: oh boy Yikes. was anyone
0: else involved with Man. this yes her okay
1: <laughs> Jeez. do not commit oh, God. crime
0: or do commit crime because you know.
1: yeah no kidding
0: so those are my great audit stories all all of this to say is as, as much as we've looked at some really horrendous things right i do i do want to to revisit right we're talking about quality assurance and the safety nets that are in place to make sure that things are done properly and there are tons of them okay so we talked about qc checks right at, at, at the document granular level and it's not just on the documents there's loads of different things that are qc checked right tablets will be counted in and out it's really really attention to detail mm-hmm. on lots of different things project management for the oversight sops so we're all working consistently data reviews so that we're picking up on patterns or problems or issues or gaps monitoring to make sure that the site are behaving and doing stuff properly audits and inspections is another catch-all level plus always never forget the regulators and ethics committees look at what is planned i.e. what is submitted to them and say hey we want to do this can we do it and they get the permission to do it and then what is done so ethics committees and regulators both receive progress reports of how a study is going the regulators will also look in detail at the data when it's submitted so the example of mr december i don't know if it could have been caught without that one person but almost every other case that i've pointed out here Consent forms will be found with monitoring or auditing or um, protocol deviations or adverse events or anything like this. Any any dodginess in the data will be picked up through one or more of these different mechanisms. So, yeah, people aren't out here doing research willy-nilly or chaotically, right? (laughs) Or if they are, it is illegal and there are mechanisms in place to catch them and stop them. If people are doing interventional research poorly... Yeah, Someone is going to find out, right? Like this Mr. December, he was lucky in that he was in these two conflicting studies and he was healthy and he survived. But if he hadn't, yeah, right, and there'd been any kind of investigation into his death, which there sure. almost always would be, like if there's a death on a clinical study, you're going to look at that in forensic detail,
1: mm-hmm. then we'd
0: have got to the bottom of the case, which wouldn't have helped because a patient would have died potentially because of this doctor's actions, but the safety nets that are in place now catch stuff.
1: Yes. And actually, I think this speaks to something we talked about on a, an earlier episode of the very point of doing it this way is to catch it before someone dies now. Right? Ideally. Because beca- before, when we were talking about like the history of how these things came into place, mm. it was always a reaction to something has gone catastrophically wrong and now we have to put in a huge new set of things that changes everything about clinical research and so and i remember in those in that discussion saying like well wouldn't it be nice if we could get to the point where have we gotten to the point where we're not doing these reactionary huge changes we're actually at the point now where we say like oh we've caught something and now we can make small changes or you know, like it's actually against the rules already and we can correct course or whatever, mm. as opposed to waiting for people to die and then having like a maybe we shouldn't let doctors do this without oversight. Mm. Right. Like or whatever. That case I, may maybe so it seems like actually I think we're moving in the right
0: direction, but I don't think we're there yet. Yes. Right. If we think about like yeah. the last big clinical research scandal, which to me is the COVID vaccines in pregnant persons, we've not fixed that problem yeah. yet. We haven't. For, as someone in the industry, yeah. we haven't.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I agree with you, and I think there's a lot still to be unpacked here because I think ultimately, like we can always boil this down to like if this doctor in Poland had been better at covering her tracks, right, or if people just want to lie about all of the data that they're reporting, mm. right, if they can manage to get enough I I mean it's probably like depends on how small or big the study is but like you can imagine a situation where someone has enough control or there's enough money involved or enough people who are desperate enough to like doctor a lot more than just one one doctor's worth of patients right and um those kinds of things still stand out to me as like man that would be harder to catch if maybe maybe not yeah I don't know I don't believe that 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 large groups of people can do that much coordinated uh without either a whistleblower or
0: someone's a, gonna find like out just, about it yeah
1: yeah exactly there's too many people making too many mistakes when everyone's trying to coordinate the, a lie yeah it's all it, 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 this there's is a, the main
0: issue that yeah. I have with like a lot of conspiracy theories is the number yes. of people <laughs> that it would take to be in on this lie yeah,
1: yeah, yeah like do you
0: not think someone's gonna mess up at some point yeah anyway
1: yeah well I'm like you know <laughs> people are like oh the government is implanting micro and the government
0: is not that vaccines. organized i'm
1: like oh my god you have no idea like we could never pull that off without everybody knowing about it are you kidding so yeah anyway cool cool that's it
0: that's quality assurance cool all right we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast <laughs> why are you laughing elise is it because of the <laughs> dangerously long pause that i left
1: <laughs> not even that it's just like <laughs> so many of our episodes come to like a nice kind of, like, conclusion feel of, like, ah, oh, yes, we've done it, we've, con- we've, we've, we've it. Up, no, we've summed that up. And this one is just like, oh, of... there's... Yeah, well, that's quality assurance. So... So we hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but it is, that is quality assurance. We yeah. have assured the quality of yeah. this podcast. We hope yeah. you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. Of course, please rate and review. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page at clinical.research.intro on Instagram. Our website, managed and set up by a Genius Elise, has transcripts available and other information too. You can get that at intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com finally a big thank you from us to our wonderful friend sam winnie for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro so thanks and goodbye from me debbie say goodbye elise goodbye goodbye elise